So welcome to this um, event for the Cambridge Science Festival in conjunction with the Cambridge Climate Lecture Series. My name's Hugh Hunt and I'm the chairman of the Cambridge Climate Lecture Series. Uh, the Cambridge Climate Lecture Series began uh, shortly after the death of David Mackay. Some of you will remember David. Um, he was an extraordinary thinker on, on energy and climate and uh, renewable resources. He had just been appointed as the Regis Professor in Engineering. He had written this remarkable book, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. Uh, it's available free online if you want to, to look into it. Um, so I'm very glad that our CCLS is now in its third year and going strong. So thank you, David, for inspiring us to do this. The, um, the, the lectures we've had so far in the CCLS um, have been over the last four weeks. The pattern really is that in February, on Thursdays, we do talks uh, every Thursday, and then the fifth lecture is a, an event here for the Cambridge Science Festival. If you want to get onto the CCLS mailing list, then if you go to our website and, and uh, sign up for the mailing list there. Um, we've got an event coming up on Monday, the 25th of March, which is talking about uh, uh, sustainability in general, not just about climate change. So if you uh, would like to come along to that, do sign up uh, to, for that event. So on to tonight. We're um, very pleased that uh, we're doing this, uh, this thing for... James Lovelock, who turns 100 this year. Um, my guess is that he's uh, tuned in listening to this. Um, he apologises that he can't be here tonight. It's just a bit difficult. But we, were, we visited him uh, just recently and recorded some great stuff, which you will, you will hear tonight. He's got plenty of great stuff to say. So he's best known for his uh, work on proposing the Gaia hypothesis, and tonight you will hear a lot about that. It's all about um, postulating that the Earth functions as some kind of self-regulating system. Uh, tonight, then, we've got a discussion with uh, three, uh, three climate-related scientists. Um, Chris Rapley, who's a professor of Earth Sciences at, the University, at University College London. He was, for some time, director of the British Antarctic Survey and was director of the Science Museum in London. And Tim Lenton is director of the uh, Global Systems in Institute at the University of Exeter. And he has for a long time been inspired by Jim Lovelock's books on Gaia. And he's working on identifying the uh, tipping elements in the climate system. And our chair for this evening is uh, physicist and oceanographer Helen Chersky at the University College London. And she's passionate about understanding the physical engine of the Earth and of our atmosphere and the oceans. And last summer, you may have seen that she was on a, a Swedish and American research expedition into the Arctic, and that sounded like it was a great challenge. So without further ado, I'd like you to welcome to these lovely red chairs our panel for this evening. And it's lovely to see you, and it's lovely actually me to, for me to be back here, because I think my first ever undergraduate lecture was in this room. Uh, I'm not telling you how many years ago that was. Uh, so we're here to talk about 
Gaia and Jim Lovelock and where these ideas have gone. And the thing, there's lots of important and interesting reasons for doing this, but really the thing that this story brings out is how ideas develop in science. And there's things, uh, when I first read Jim's books on Gaia, that I, I almost didn't understand why anyone had written them down because in, for my generation, they were taken for, as given. Um, but that is, that, it took time and it took effort to get those ideas across. And so I think it's really interesting and it's really important when we talk about science to understand how ideas develop and it would probably make us better scientists if we considered it more often. So as you've heard, uh, Chris and Tim, are they've both got very different voices in this uh, debate and in this story. So Chris is kind of maybe the climate scientist who's a generation above me. Is that, am I allowed to say that? Two. He's making faces <laughs> at me. Um, so he kind of was there as this was happening and, and saw these ideas develop and saw their impact and is also obviously very knowledgeable about current climate science. And then Tim is, is now, is sort of in a way representing, is the next generation of Jim, am I allowed to say that? I hope so. Am I allowed to say that, Jim, listening in uh, yeah, yeah. on Facebook? Um, so with this idea that, that is still under discussion in science and it's still, you know, it's, it sort of sits slightly uneasily in what's going on for some scientists. And I think it's really important in the development of ideas that we talk about all this. So... Um, that's what we're going to cover this evening. And so the way this is going to work, we are going to introduce some of these ideas, bring everyone up to speed with what did happen and what is happening. Uh, and then as we go along, there'll be more time for questions as we go. We're hoping also to have questions from anyone watching online. So if you're watching online, get on Twitter, get on Facebook, send your questions in, we'll answer what we can. Um, and towards the end, it will become more of a discussion. Um, there is a hashtag for this, is it up there? There's a hashtag, CCLS2019. So if you'd like to tweet along, do feel free. Um, and with that, we will begin. And how better to begin than with a description of how Jim Lovelock came to Gaia theory, how it occurred to him. And uh, here is him telling that story. The job I got, strangely enough, it was one of the first space uh, ventures in Britain um, was I got a letter from the director of space flight operations of NASA asking if I joined with them on their um, exploration of uh, the moon and Mars and uh, and this was terrific this was in 1961 before anything of that sort had happened at all and the, uh, the reason they asked me, not because I'm a physicist or a space person or anything like that, was that I'd made um, little bits of apparatus that were very sensitive, could detect and identify all manner of chemicals uh, that might be connected with life. And they were small enough and used very little power and were just the kind of things they wanted to put on their spacecraft the rovers and voyagers, and uh, that's how I got involved in it. And the, the question that was put to me was, how would I detect life on a planet? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's quite a difficult question when you think about it. Um, and what are you going to do? Look for rhinoceroses or something like that, or cockroaches? Um, there's no simple way, because you don't know what's on Mars. Anyway, there mightn't be anything like that. Um, was there any general way of detecting life? Well, very fortunately, 
a, f a famous physicist, Schrodinger, had come up with the idea that if you want to f find life, what you look for is a reduction of entropy on the planet. And uh, now entropy is one of those nasty words that they confuse students with. Um, it, but uh, what it means really, it, it's uh, um, entropy is disorder. You look for um, the, the, the relative amount of order and disorder on the surface of the planet. If, and if you find uh, that uh, something is happening on the planet that is either putting it in order or the opposite, then that's interesting and there might be life there. And then uh, knowing that, then you can start looking for the kind of life that it might, might be. And uh, it was this that then made me think, well, of course, the Earth's a planet. Uh, so why not look at the Earth this way? Um, and and uh, see if there's an entropy reduction in, in the whole of the Earth system, uh, which indicates, which is caused by uh, the presence of life on the planet. And sure enough, there's a huge entropy reduction. In, in, in the Earth's atmosphere, for example, to say nothing of the surface in the ocean. And I'll give you an example. For example, if you go up and analyze the gases in the atmosphere, you find there's a mixture of methane and uh, oxygen present. Now, this is, this is uh, illogical because they react together in sunlight, and in a sense, they're burning. And uh, um, th this would never happen on a planet with no life. It means that the planet has life on it. Uh, and that is very interesting if you're an exobiologist looking for life on other planets. But it interested me from a totally different point of view. What on earth was the Earth doing this for? Why, what, what was happening? Why? And of course, the more you think about it, the more you find that uh, it, it has to do with climate, it has to do with the composition of the, of the surface and uh, its effect on life and so on and so forth. So, uh, he didn't pick that. It's a great introduction to how he got into it, but he didn't say very much about Gaia itself and what that hypothesis was. So, Chris is going to fill in that gap. Thank you very much. <coughs> Good evening, everybody. Excuse my voice. It's not quite prime ministerial, but it's going that way. <coughs> <laughs> so it's my job to, to say a few words about how I first encountered Jim and Gaia and, and what I've learned uh, about uh, Jim in particular and a little bit about Gaia since. So wind back 33 years uh, to the end of 1986. And I was in uh, a, a young uh, researcher in the uh, Mollard Space Science Laboratory, the Space Science Lab of University College London, which is in a lovely old building out in the Surrey Wolds. Um, and we were in a very exciting period. Uh, we, we were helping the European Space Agency and to some extent uh, NASA Goddard and NASA JPL develop their ideas about a whole fleet of uh, low Earth orbiting satellites that were going to study the Earth's surface. And so this was very new stuff. There had been a few trial missions. And what we found was that we were opening up a new window on the planet. Uh, we actually tried to coin the, the word macroscope. You use a microscope to study things that are very small compared with you. 
and the idea was that a macroscope allowed you to study something very big compared with you as a planet. Um, and we were particularly interested in a, 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 a special instrument, a vertical instrument's radar. And, and this radar didn't discriminate. It was actually designed to operate over the ocean, but it operated perfectly happily over the land, the ice, the inland water, the tropical rainforests. And so we found ourselves analyzing data. It was like being in an Aladdin's cave. Every time we looked into the data, we found something new and wonderful and interesting. Um, to simply to be able to talk to the specialist people who we were providing disruptive new ways of uh, working, uh, we hired a geographer, and I have to say the head of the physics and astronomy department nearly had an apoplexy when he heard that we'd hired a geographer to do that, but I won't go into the old traditions of uh, discriminatory science. So in December 1986, a colleague of mine, Ian Mason, uh, came into my office and said, have you seen the latest copy of New Scientist? Uh, to which I hadn't. He said, there's an article in there that I think you're really going to enjoy. Uh, and, and this is it. This is the, <laughs> this is the original one. So it's pretty faded by now. Um, and there's a lot of yellow markings on here um, uh, because I, I looked at it. And the title is Gaia, The World as a Living Organism. Now, I, I uh, for one reason or another, hadn't bumped into Jim's idea or Jim. Um, but I read that. And then I read the subtitle, As Organisms Grow, they benefit the environment as well as themselves. Geophysiological Geophysio systems thus emerge from the activity of individual organisms. Um, and, and then the paper goes on. The Earth has remained a comfortable place for living organisms for the whole 3.5 billion years since life began. And, and essentially, Jim was asking the question, well, is that just an enormous piece of luck, uh, given all of the other things that have happened to the planet in that time? Or is there something more interesting going on? Is the biology not simply a passenger, but is it actually manufacturing conditions that are suitable for its uh, own uh, long uh, self-interest? So um, I'm kind of slightly ashamed to admit it, but I do watch The Voice on a, a Saturday evening. And there are occasions, uh, those of you that don't, uh, this is a, a program where uh, would-be popular singers uh, try their luck. And the, uh, the judges who are um, aficionados in this initially sit away and listen to the voice. And just occasionally, within the first bar, people hit their button and turn around uh, because they uh, instantly say, this individual has something special. And so for me, reading this paper, I more or less hit the button straight away and rotated my chair because this really, really resonated. Now, why? Um, at its core, you've heard, there's a wonderfully elegant piece of thinking going on. Schrodinger had said, life will leave its, leave its mark. Uh, if, if life is, uh, has invaded a planet, it won't do it by halves. It will have found a way to be there, uh, make its presence felt. And it will use the fluids, the atmosphere, and the ocean to both uh, draw in nutrients and to release them, release wastes. And if that happens, the chemical balance of the atmosphere will almost certainly be extremely unusual, not in its rest state. And so what he didn't say in his uh, presentation here was that he was working with NASA. They were figuring out all sorts of ways to discover whether there would be life on Mars. Just one little anecdote he told me once, and he may not ever remember telling me, he said, you know, he said, one of the people I was working with in NASA said uh, very secretively, Psst, come and have a look what I've got. And so Jim went and he got a tiny little spring trap. And Jim said to him, well, why have you got that? And he said, uh, it, it, it's to catch the small 
uh, insects that will be running around on the surface <laughs> of Mars. And Jim thought, you know, that's not probably the best way to do this. You know, fleas on Mars, well. So Jim said, you know what, if we look at the atmosphere, we'll tell. And he went and looked at some infrared spectra that the French astronomers had got and went back cheerfully to NASA and said, don't bother with going to Mars. The atmosphere's dead. There's no life there. But they had a big, big program of, of satellites, so they quietly said, well, look, Jim, you keep your ideas to yourself, but we're going to fly these things anyway. So that's a whole other thread. So, so why, why, I probably couldn't have articulated this at the time, but why did this uh, paper and, and subsequent readings have such a big impact? Well, firstly, it's the big thinking. This, this is asking big, elegant, fundamental questions, and it's an antidote to reductionism. The way science is these days, to, to make your mark, everybody has to have a greater, become a greater and greater specialist with less and less. And there are many examples of scientists who routinely kind of polish their uh, PhD thesis for all of their career. Uh, there are probably five people in the rest of the world who understand and, and have esteem for what it is they're doing. And, and that's very frustrating to some of us who always want to put the picture together. What's the, let's take all the pieces and see how, when we put the jigsaw together, what's the picture that emerges? And so th this was written by somebody who deeply understood that uh, curious motivation. What is the big picture here? Um, it's also an antidote to objectivation. Schrodinger, who in 1956 gave a series of lectures in Trinity, uh, announced two principles of science. One was the assumption that nature is understandable, but secondly, uh, that in order to make progress, you need to objectify it. You need to withdraw the observer, uh, in a sense, assuming that, that what you're observing is true, even if the observer is not there. And although this is, it seems to be an important process by which you can come to conclusions about the patterns, the underlying laws of nature, it introduces problems. Descartes understood this, and to this day, we still suffer from this. And if we have time later on, I, I can explain a little bit about why this is still problematical now. But what Jim did, by talking about Gaia as a superorganism, the Earth, thinking of the Earth as a, as a live creature, whether you accept it or not, just thinking it that, of it that way put the soul back into science. It connected reality, our spirituality. It connected us, living things, with this objectified object of study. And, and, and that's very, very important. And that, of course, is why it attracted a lot of new age interest and, and uh, attracted interest from a much, much broader audience than the science community. And of course, it's also why many members of the science community felt very uh, nervous or dismissive of it, because this, this objectification, this removal of the human element of science, which is all a myth, because scientists are incredibly passionate. You know, they pretend they're like Mr. Spock in Star Trek, you know, being very, very logical. Actually, they're very passionate people. And so this myth that there's some separation between that human element and the science is indeed a myth. And Jim just confronted that head on. So that was why it was um, uh, uh, attractive too. Thirdly, it's an antidote to causality. The, the human brain tends to think linearly. The ball moves because we kicked it. Uh, but I had come across, prior to Jim, uh, I had come across a, uh, a, a, an American scientist called Jay Forrester, who in the 70s had published a paper called The Counterintuitive Behavior of Social Systems. And his opening words were, the human mind is not adapted to interpreting how social systems behave. 
Such systems belong to a class of multi-loop nonlinear feedback systems with cascades and connections uh, with all sorts of exchanges going on. In the long history of evolution, it's not been necessary until very recently uh, for people to understand complex systems, and we're not very good at it. Now, I'd say that, that you know, Brexit and the relationship between Britain and, the, and Europe well is a wonderful example of not understanding the complex interactions of, of these sorts of systems. And, and what Jay Forrester said was that at last the, the digital computer model allows us to break into these and begin to play with them and begin to understand whether something that may seem to be causal, we do something over here and something over there happens, may not be behaving in the way we think it is at all. And then finally, um, I, I sensed a kindred spirit. I, I started as an experimental physicist building instruments to fly on rockets and, and satellites, actually to study uh, the cosmos and the sun, and then decided turning them over to look at the Earth uh, was just as interesting and probably more useful. Um, and, and Jim, as you've heard, is, sees himself first and foremost as an inventor, somebody who, who builds these wonderful instruments uh, that, that have made in enormous differences to our ability to detect small uh, uh, concentrations of chemicals in the environment and so on. So, so those were part of the reasons why I think I was uh, uh, resonating with him. Now, I really wanted to go and see him and talk to him, but I was actually embarrassed. I had no reason to do so um, until 1994 when I was uh, appointed as director of the International Geosphere Biosphere Program. Now, this was a program that was built on the sorts of premises that Jim had been thinking about, the interconnectedness of the biology, the chemistry, the physics of the world. And indeed, Jim had been very much one of the kind of founding fathers, the, the thinkers behind it. So with that uh, uh, appointment made, uh, I contacted Jim and, and my wife, Norma, and I went down in our little red sports car uh, to Coombe Mill and met uh, Jim and Sandy. Uh, the, the red sports car was a, a kind of uh, middle-aged crisis with a long, a long non-Gaussian tail, because I still own it, actually. But anyway. Um, <laughs> So, so we met there, and, and uh, Jim and Sandy and, and Norma and I hit it off, and I think it's fair to say I, I hope Jim wouldn't uh, 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 disagree that we've really been friends ever since. So what have I learned about Jim in that 25 years? We've worked on, on and off on, on lots of interesting things. So one, at core, as I've said, he's an inventor. Uh, uh, engineer doesn't capture it. He, he develops instruments. But he doesn't just develop them, he, he, he uses them, and uses them in brilliant ways. So he's an instrumentalist. So uh, whether he's addressing chemistry, physics, biology, human biology, if you read his uh, uh, biography, you'll see what an extraordinary range of science he's studied. He's fundamentally an, uh, an instrumentalist. And at Coombe Mill, he used to grin and say, uh, there are no health and safety people down here, which is quite scary, actually, because... <laughs> Uh, so he was very interested in explosions at one point. So <laughs> anyway, um, so secondly, he's a scientist. There's no doubt about that. He's a fellow of the Royal Society, has a distinguished career of published uh, uh, papers. And of course, scientists are explorers. So he's a discoverer driven by curiosity. Thirdly, though, he's a thinker. And thinkers are different. You, there are lots of people who are instrumentalists. There are lots of people who are scientists. But he's a deep thinker. Uh, and thinkers reveal deep truths. And, and talking to Jim years ago, I said to him, you know, because he's been an independent scientist for many, many years, um, I said, what's the great advantage, what do you think is the greatest advantage of being an independent scientist? And he said, well, Chris, he said, I can get up in the morning and I can either sit around or go for a walk, but I can think 
uninterrupted for eight hours or more, and sometimes it takes eight hours of thinking to allow something to gestate and think it through. And there are very few people in professional science who, who really have eight hours of uninterrupted thinking to them. That's, uh, that's something that is uh, very special. So a couple more things. He's a writer. He's a communicator. If, you, if you've read his books, um, you will know that. I just picked one at random a couple of hours ago on the train coming up here, and I found this straight away. Um, Do not be misled by the lulls in climate change. In the real world, change is rarely smooth. It goes by fits and starts, more like the halting progress of a traffic jam than the easy motion of the open road. What a beautiful metaphor, something that all of us know. We've all been stuck on the motorway with these funny uh, waves of stop-start that go through. But what a lovely way of expressing something that's profound and real. So he's a communicator. He's an advocate. He's been advocating for a long time. You know what? We really need to do something about climate change. It's, uh, it, it really threatens our uh, well-being. The planet, of course, uh, is indifferent. And finally, the thing I think that probably attracts me to him as much as anything is that he's a maverick. I'm not sure whether it's Carl Sagan or, 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 or um, Schneider who called him a mischievous intellect. And he is. Uh, I remember seeing a TV program of him once years ago, and the uh, interviewer said to him, what things surprise you? Uh, he's out in the country somewhere, and he said, oh, this. Um, and he said, you know, do you realize the complexity of the cybernetics that allows me to hop like that? Well, you know, in, in, in science, as in anything, there are lots of people who take themselves far too seriously. My money goes to somebody who hops on TV. I think that uh, tells you a lot. So I think with that, uh, we, we can talk a little bit more about Gaia as the evening moves on. We're now going to see um, three more clips from, from Jim. But I just want to tell you um, one, uh, no, two more brief anecdotes, two quick ones. When I was director of the Science Museum, I kept in close correspondence with Jim, and Jim took a very close interest in, in what we were doing there, because as much to him, as much to me, as much to many, many scientists in the UK, the Science Museum has had a formative impression on us as, as children, as has the Royal Institution, for example. And Jim sent me an email at one point, and he said, um, when you're doing all of these changes, Chris, don't forget the SBN. So I thought, oh, SBN, SBN. So in the end, I, uh, I gave up, and I sent him an email, said, sorry, Jim, what is the SBN? He said, the small bespectacled nerd. <laughs> he said, when I was a young boy, I used to skive off school, and I, used to, uh, and I had so much fun <laughs> and learned so much and was so inspired by the dark corners of the Science Museum where I poked around and found stuff that the majority of people weren't finding. So respect and help the small bespectacled nerd. And then the other thing is that Jim has had a long, uh, Jim will say a lot about, uh, a lot of his thinking comes because he's still rural and not urban. Uh, until quite recently, he would go for a, a couple of mile walk every morning. Uh, when I used to go down there, he was the one who was striding along and I was the one panting behind him. And he sent me another very excited email a couple of years ago. And it said, Chris, 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 I was out on my walk this morning and I got bitten by an adder and its fangs were 2.73 centimeters <laughs> apart. <laughs> and its venom didn't do anything to me at all. So with that, we're probably time to go on and let Jim do some of the talking. So thank you.
<laughs> Thank you, Chris. Just before uh, we watch the, the videos, small conclusion from Jim, I just wanted to, to add something, to pick up on something that Chris said about the context for Gaia when it first mm. came along. Um, because if you heard, a lot of this came along in the era of early satellites, and it is something we absolutely take for granted now that we know what our planet looks like because we are bombarded with images, even on the weather forecast. You know, there's pictures of our planet. We, we grow up now, kids now grow up knowing exactly what our planet looks like. But back in the 50s and 60s, we knew much less about the planet. Earth observation as a science was much, much newer. And uh, you think about all the ice cores, the genetic techniques, and all these things now, the huge amount of science we've done in the decades that, that came along since then. You know, they were... This was very raw material he was working with. And this big, like there were all these complications that they had no way of measuring, no way of dealing with it. And this was humanity just starting to grapple with that idea, just being able to see it. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that, that Gaia was, was picked up on quite so much. So now, we, as Chris said, we've got three videos um, of Jim, short videos, talking about various aspects of Gaia. Because I, you do start to talk about Gaia almost as a person, actually. It's very hard not to. I've got a friend called Gaia as well. Anyway, um, so where are we? Here we go. The Gaia concept, the idea that we live on a planet that is itself alive and regulates itself. Yes. Well, this is an, an idea that I think most ordinary people had before science came along. <laughs> and then scientists came along and said, oh, nonsense, no not live talk, how could it be? Um, <laughs> you don't see rocks moving around and winking at each other and things like <laughs> that. Um, it's, uh, and so in a way it died. And I think we, we've lost a lot as a result of that. Um, it, it, it's less romantic, I think, to think of the Earth as an absolutely dead, just a pile of rocks and water and stuff. An unfortunate mistake that happened in teaching long, long ago, probably as far back as Aristotle, um, and that is uh, of teaching uh, things that happen on the earth and the, the, the existence of things as a matter of cause and effect. It's the cause and effect. And uh, sort of for thinking of it in terms of geometry and so on. Instead of thinking of it as alive and uh, um, well, I suppose you, you couldn't expect them to think of it as alive unless, it, unless you put the idea in their heads. Well, I suppose that's my job, really. <laughs> if you think of the Earth as just a piece of rock uh, that happens to be moistened with water, and remarkably little water, really, um, and it's got air very thin air that you breathe onto on it. If you think of it as no more than that, it, you, you don't really have a picture of this vivid, wonderful, live thing that you happen to inhabit. It's perfectly true to say that as a living entity, uh, Gaia, if it really is, and I'm right, uh, it likes it cool or cold. Um, and to give you an example of this, if the sea temperature at the surface rises above 15 degrees Celsius, it's not very hot. There's very little life in it. 
And that is why when you go to uh, uh, the tropics, places like that, the sea is beautifully blue and it's clear and you can see right down to 100 meters or something like that. The reason you can do that is there's no life in it to, to absorb light or anything like that. And uh, uh, indeed, you could say that the ocean in the central part, the equatorial part of the Earth, is more of a desert than the Sahara is. There's less life per square mile or whatever you want, unit you want to use. We were once very surprised. Uh, we went to Cambridge uh, to see Chris Rapley. I think is involved with some of this thing. And uh, he showed us some fish that were swimming at one and a half degrees below freezing in salt water. And they were swimming around and they were full of life and they would come and pick up a morsel of food from your finger if you put it in. speculate on that next time you, th you think it's cold in uh, in Cambridge. Um, so Gaia had, one of the interesting things about scientific theories of course is that the bigger ones don't just stay frozen and if you read through the series of books that Jim wrote, the first one and the most recent one are actually quite different in, in the slant they take and there's the same basic idea but the idea has developed. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that is less, perhaps less understood about this, is that it wasn't one thing that was spoken in 1968 or 72 or whenever it was, and then it just stayed, it became a fossil immediately. That's not how it's worked out. And uh, so now we're gonna hear from Tim, because he's one of the people that has taken these ideas and taken them on, uh, and can perhaps tell us where they're going next. Hmm. So I need to take you back to um, autumn 1991, when I was a first year undergraduate natural scientist here, Robinson College. Um, we were living amidst the realization of the ozone hole, of the destruction of the Amazon, of, well, we were out waving placards against the World Trade Organization and the proposed global agreement on trades and tariffs. You know, I was part of a generation who were sensitized to global environmental social issues. And I was also a little bit of a depressed uh, first term, first year Natsuki. Um, to, be f to be honest, uh, there was something missing in the way I was being taught here. I hate to confess in these hallowed uh, halls. And um, I went back home for Christmas rather miserable. And my dad, who, who's a who was a scientist, a plant hormone biochemist, gave me Jim's uh, first two books as a Christmas present. And they just connected with me at that particular moment in, in my own sort of formative years, I guess. I was passionate about science and I was already passionate about the earth and about these issues that were unfolding around me and his work just clicked. Uh, and at the end of his second book, which is the one, The Ages of Gaia, if I'm allowed to say so, I think his best, uh, he, he sort of ends it saying, you know, we need some kind of medicine or physiology for the planet is there a doctor out there question mark and i thought well I, this is captivating i think i found the thing i want to work on I'll, I'll write this i'll write jim lovelock a letter um which i duly did and uh being the man he is he he, he replied he heard from this 
unknown kid, 18-year-old, living up the road in Nailsey near Bristol and said, oh, why don't you come down and come and pay me a visit? So by the end of my, at the end of my first year here, I was back home. I you know, borrowed the mum or dad's car, pottled down to Coo Mill where Jim and Sandy used to live and we just got chatting. We hit it off and from there, I think I, he gifted me uh, the journey I'm, I'm still on, which is really to get into to try to develop this science that he's, he's, he's gifted us. So in this first book, there are some extraordinary revelations, for the, at least for me as the young scientist. <coughs> uh, it's the first time I'd been confronted with the extraordinary transformation of the planet that had happened due to life, and the fact that I could only be here breathing an oxygen-rich atmosphere because of the activities of billions of years of cyanobacteria, algae, and now plants. Yes, I mentioned, yep, we hit it off early on. That was, that's an early shot together. And by the time I was in uh, my final year here, um, he was, Jim was good enough to invite me along to one of these uh, meetings. He, was, he and Sandy were convening in Oxford through the 1990s. So if you look carefully, you won't just see me in the middle somewhere and Jim down there, but a whole raft of uh, famous figures in this story. And uh, I, got, I, I got lucky. I started, thanks to Jim's influence, I started working on a, a PhD in this area with a guy called Andy Watson, who sat on the front row. And um, I guess what you want to do as a scientist is un understand how the world works, right? And in the case of Gaia, at one level, um, what we were trying to do was understand the actual mechanisms by which life was involved in self-regulating the cycling of all the resources it needed, including the oxygen level of the atmosphere, the nutrient levels in the ocean, the temperature of the planet. That's one level of understanding and one that I kind of try to continue to pursue. But there's another um, question that Gaia raises, which is how did those mechanisms come to be here or to predominate now? You know, why hasn't life driven the planet off into an in inhospitable state? Why does it appear to be the case that these self-regulating mechanisms, as Jim described them, have not only arisen, but they've accumulated on the planet? I mean, it feels like an evolutionary mechanism must be at play. But uh, Jim and Lynn, you know, famously put the Gaia hypothesis out there. But the, the Jim Lovelock I met and the, uh, in the 1980s, or the 1990s, had just been through, the, through a, a decade of being hammered over the head by characters like these chaps on the right, Richard Dawkins at the bottom and Chuck W. Ford Doolittle up there, who are leading evolutionary thinkers who had basically been battering Jim over the head with the fact that there's no way Gaia, the Earth system, whatever you want to call it, can be self-regulating because it's been um, refined by natural selection. Um, they rightly pointed out that there isn't a population of planets producing offspring in which the ones that regulate a little bit better produce more offspring and so on. That's a sort of an unworkable mechanism for the planet. And they used their sort of weddedness to their own favorite theory in a sense to reject the hypothesis. But some of us didn't reject it. And we, we've been asking ourselves ever since, well, what kind of evolutionary mechanism is at play here if we accept that the Earth not only has one self-regulating mechanism, it has many, and they've been accumulating over time. 
So the thing I'm still working on, and I, I published something about even last year, was beginning to explain what we've come in the recent decades to understand about um, what you might call simpler or cruder selection mechanisms that can select for stabilizing outcomes at a, at a planetary or biosphere scale. At the same time, it's worth saying that natural selection, there's no conflict here with the beloved Darwinian theory of natural selection, and, and we'd be in trouble if there was. And it's actually very helpful if we try to explain how, how do we see nutrient cycling around us in the world everywhere. Well, one organism's waste becoming another organism's food can be a perfectly natural product of Darwinian selection. But when you go up the scales, as I'm trying to sketch here, and you go up to the planetary scale and billion-year time scales, you can't invoke uh, natural selection to explain what's going on there. But instead, we now think we're getting an understanding of how the dynamics of a system as complex as the Earth, it kind of goes through a series of experiments, thanks to the innovations of life. Uh, and sometimes it finds stability, and sometimes it doesn't. But crucially, when it finds stability, that tends to persist. And once it's found one stable configuration, that little bit of extra persistence gives it a chance to acquire another stabilizing mechanism that'll make it persist even longer, and so on. And that's what we're still working on right now, is to unpack some of, some of the what we think is new theory there that can explain what's going on. The last thing I wanted to say, though, is um, Jim got a battering before and since I met him over the idea that his hypothesis, Gaia, implied some kind of conscious foresight or purposive behaviour on the part of unconscious living things. And he went to extraordinary lengths before I met him in the 1980s to invent a model called Daisy World to illustrate to people that uh, a, th a planetary scale system of life in its environment could come to regulate temperature completely automatically. There was no need to invoke a sort of reflection, a consciousness, a foresight, a purpose. Um, but for me, the irony of the situation we're all finding ourselves in today is that as humans, we have kind of collectively woken up to the Earth system or Gaia consequences of our actions. Uh, we're busy monitoring and modeling that. And some of us have already started to consciously change our actions in response to that information, to cycle more, to drive less, to fly less, whatever it is. And that is teleological feedback. That is the thing that Jim had to purge from the pre-human Gaia. It's back with abundance with us. And that's what I decided to call uh, Gaia 2.0, the idea that we might be able to add a little bit of self-awareness to the Earth's self-regulation. We might use our collective awareness of the consequences of act our actions to, if you like, feedback on our own behavior and not just uh, blindly march into the climate apocalypse. Now, I've been helped in this kind of thinking, interestingly, by both Jim and by someone else who's been inspired by Jim, who's a non-scientist, but a great philosopher and sociologist of science, which is that guy. Bruno Latour, and what he rightly reminded me and chastised me for as a scientist was there's no such thing as this dislocated brain down the bottom there, Tim, and uh, it makes you want to ask some questions if you even take this idea on board. Who are the humans playing this role in this uh, possible 
conscious regulation? What sort of consciousness can we expect of them, or rather us? And for me, the really interesting question scientifically, what things could we learn from the prior Gaia that would teach us something about how to construct a sustainable, flourishing future for us and for all our future generations? So that's where I've got to in now about 28 years. <laughs> so just to pick up on a few things there. So there's a question. So I want us to be really clear here because it's, it's sometimes hard with these ideas to keep track of all the different bits. And I just wanted to ask you to be super clear about one point, which I think is quite important, which is that, um, that we have a very commonly now a, a phrase you hear is earth system science. In fact, you are a professor of it now. Mm. And uh, to me, an example, so I work at the ocean surface, right? And, and I cannot study what I study, breaking waves and bubbles, without studying biology, chemistry, large scale things, small scale things. It, it comes, uh, if you're going to study that environment, things interact. There are feedbacks all over the place. You know, this causes that, causes that. There are complicated consequences. And, and what I'd like you to be really clear about is how, it, how is Gaia, either the first or the second version, different just from a system which, you know, it's, it's finely balanced, it's in equilibrium, these things are all you know, feed in and out of each other. It, it, it can just be like that. Why do you need something else? Well, the first thing to say is we wouldn't have a system science if we hadn't had Jim Lovelock and the Gaia hypothesis. It predates any such notions. So in many ways, as Jim used to put it, the Earth system or Earth system science is just a scientifically correct name for Gaia. Um, but it is true that there was a separate tradition that Chris will know well as well that grew and came interestingly out of NASA in the 1980s where they started to define and identify this co thing called Earth system science. They wrote a, a committee, wrote a, a seminal report about it in the 1980s and they got as far as recognising that this was a system with lots of interacting parts including a human part they don't actually say anything about feedbacks in that report. They certainly don't say anything about self-regulation. As Chris well knows, by the time we got to 2001, uh, the organisation Chris mentioned that he was leading for a long time and other global change organisations came together and made a statement, the Amsterdam Declaration on Global Change, where they got as far as saying the Earth behaves as a self-regulating system, but they stopped short of saying what its goal function is, what is it regulating towards, and that was the, that, that's as close as a system science has got to Gaia. In the case of Gaia, the simple answer is its goal is to maintain habitable conditions for the flourishing of life. So, of course, ideas can emerge from slightly different quarters, blend and get very close to each other, but for me, crucially, um, to start with, it all starts with Gaia, and crucially, Gaia puts the emphasis on the agency of life. Uh, I like to think of it as all of these other living things, bacteria or whatever, are free agents just trying to create their own conditions for survival and flourishing. And we're in some, as Lovelock put it, very democratic mm. collective with those other creatures. And the remarkable thing about the, the network of life is it's, abled, it's been able to extend itself in space from presumably starting in a pond somewhere at the smallest scale to the global scale and in time to 3.8 billion years so far and Gaia for me is that extraordinary network of, of those agents extending themselves in space and time not just a mechanical 
quasi-cybernetic system of complex feedback because life is all about information, it's about evolution, it's about learning from experience. And that's what you miss, Helen, if you don't, if all you have are just the mechanics. Um, if, yeah, let's go. <coughs> just add something in. I, th I think the real distinction, uh, you, you find the world tends to d divide, doesn't it, between broadly what you might call soft guidance, that is people <laughs> who accept that the world is a hugely complex interactive system where the biology plays, isn't just a passenger, it plays a formative role. Um, and, and that next step, the brave step, um, the, the, the extraordinary step that Jim took to say it is alive, it, it is the superorganism. We step back from it and there it is, sitting there, this little pearl in the darkness of space. <coughs> and of course, you, um, Helen, you were talking about the um, impact of the early pictures from space, but the Apollo 8 astronauts, as they, as they came over the horizon of the dead moon, very, very dead indeed, saw this extraordinary blue object arising. And in fact, that was 50 years ago, uh, just in December this year, <laughs> Bill Anders, Earthrise, and, that and, picture. And, and I think they articulated the view that it was alive. It was a, the thing that distinguished it was the color, the dynamics, but it was a living object. And Jim draws the analogy um, between a redwood tree where 99.9% <laughs> of the material is dead, but there is, there is a whole ecosystem of life going on in the trunk and so on. And, and it seems to me, and, and the reason that Lynn Margulis is so, so wonderful was that she realized that the, the, you know, the early symbiosis of uh, microbial life um, uh, packed itself up. And, and what I love about it, again, because she's mischievous, or she's passed away now, but the mischievous idea that the eukaryotes are laughing at us because we're great lumbering packages of them which are delivering them down into the future. We are their evolutionary vehicle. Um, and uh, it's interesting. If you've ever wondered what your gut microbiome is doing exactly. for you, so you are that's a, it. You are a great <laughs> mass of lumbering eukaryotes and they're laughing at you because you're... So a eukaryote, sorry, we should be clear here, is a multicellular organism such as ourselves, which is quite complicated, which carries all these little things inside it. So, so, but, yeah. but you see, it's, it's interesting that we're... Uh, I'm doing a lot of work on human behaviour at present and asking the question, why is it that humanity is finding it so difficult to respond to threatening issues like climate change. And it's fascinating that as you get deeper into the neuroscience and the psychology, um, the model of a human being, it appeals to a, a, a physicist, particularly one who knows Schrodinger, it's like a wave particle dualism. We, we are both at once individuals and we are social animals. And, and unless you model both of those things simultaneously, you do not capture the way that humans behave in bulk. And, and you can extend that and think about ant colonies and termite colonies and so on, where the individual becomes absorbed into a larger organism. So actually, it's, it's almost like a, a kind of false distinction that, that so upset the, the uh, official, the, the established science community when Jim had the temerity to say, this object is alive. It is alive. By, by a sensible definition, but by a very simplistic definition, you may find yourself troubled by it. I think that understanding, as I say, reintroduced the soul. It reintroduced a connection that Jim makes the point, country people, people who, people who live their lives in the natural world don't find so difficult, but we urbanites find the difficult thing to absorb. Well, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because the, the, the problem with the phrase, it is alive, is not actually about the alive bit, it's about what it is. Yes. Uh, and Okay, so I'd like to pick up on that, though. That, um, 
just before we get to questions, so we're going to have a bit of time for questions in a second, but before we get that, I'd just like both of your opinions on one thing, which is that um, it's, it's very clear, I think, that the impact that, that Gaia had, both when it came along and since, comes in two forms. And you can separate them if you're being a reductionist scientist, which may be my hat for the evening. Um, and you can say, well, one is a scientific hypothesis, which tells you how to look at the links and the interactions and all of this. And the other one is just that it's an idea. It's a relationship that we can have with our surroundings. And maybe if the hypothesis itself doesn't hold up from a strict scientific point of view, however you define that, maybe it's still useful as an emotional idea. What are both of your reactions to that? Uh, wholehearted uh, agreement in the sense that I don't think we have any hope collectively as a species unless we can recognise the miracle of our existence here after 3.8 billion years of life. And that if we can't go out into the natural world and feel the emotive connection that, that we're only here because of these elder living things and many past generations of them, and literally since that, then I don't think we're going to find the, the inner drive that it's going to take to get off the trajectory we're on and to build, to be honest, uh, uh, to be a positive part of a future Gaia. Because the, the, the thing that's implicit in what you just said is that the trajectory we're just on might be what blows Gaia apart, because if we ruin it, maybe it's not self-regulating. Hold that thought. Mm. Emotions and the scientific hypothesis. I, 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 it just goes back to what I was saying earlier. So if, if you talk to um, sub-Arctic peoples, reindeer herders and so on, we, we had a conference a few years ago where we had many elders um, they, uh, for thousands, at least a thousand years, have lived in a sustainable way in an extremely harsh and difficult environment. And the only reason they've been able to do that is by, by finding its rhythms and working with the grain of the environment, understanding its deep rhythms and having a respect for it. Uh, 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 Pacific Islanders who travelled across the Pacific in canoes, even when they reached the island, retained a canoe view of the world. That is, when you're on a canoe in the middle of the Pacific, you need, you need to conserve your water and your food and your energy and so on. And an island is just a big canoe. So there's a sort of deep understanding that you need to work with the rhythm of nature. But look at us in the West. Um, the reason that um, there is such a strong backlash, or one of the reasons, um, towards uh, the climate change threat um, is that it threatens uh, neoliberalism uh, and the powerful uh, economies and economic theories which see the environment as something to be plundered, not something to be, you know, something that's a free good. You know, we're all pumping our CO2 into the atmosphere. We're not paying a penny for the damage that we're causing. So the economic system, which drives is the powerhouse of the modern world, completely excludes the environment uh, in the way, in the respectful way that it needs to be taken. Um, and so you ask yourself, you know, is the environment part of the economy or the economy part of the environment? Well, you know, you can't eat money. Uh, it's absolutely obvious what the truth of the answer is, but the entire world functions as if it was the other way around. So this is why the sort of thinking that Jim introduces is profound in, in many different ways. Um, people who've read Chief Seattle's speech, if you, you look it up, uh, well, although it's... Keep, it's, keep it quite short. Yes, okay. It, it, I was just going to say, Chief Seattle said, we're all part of the web of life. Uh, anything you do to the web, we do to ourselves. And, and that's the thinking which is inherent in seeing the world as a living organism of which we are an integral part. And so it's a, it's a powerful doorway 
into a sustainable future if we really internalize what Jim has been saying. Uh, if we don't, then we're on a hiding to a very rough ride, which is, of course, what he called his last book. Okay, we'll take some questions now before we carry on to even more ideas. Um, if you've got a question, please keep it short. Make sure it's a question, not a comment. That would be great. Um, if you've got a question, please stick your hands up. Someone uh, with a microphone will come round and uh, give you a microphone. Uh, someone over there, I can see. Hello. I started off myself as science and ended up as a Buddhist teacher. So <laughs> I'm very interested in the whole... Um, area around consciousness and so on. So I'm glad to hear that some scientists actually bring back consciousness into the whole system of science and so on. So I have two questions. The first one is, as scientists can see how complex all systems are, as they call it, is there a notion that everything could be interconnected, which is actually part of human wisdom for thousands of years? Secondly, Jim mentioned Aristotle, and as far as I understand it, with Aristotle, that split between rational thinking and you could call it the imagination and spirituality and so on, started. So do you think it's time to, to, bring, to bring the two together again? So one thing I should have added is you're allowed one question each, but we'll, <laughs> let, we'll let the two go. Uh, okay, so interconnectedness and Aristotle. Well, we, we, we certainly study Gaia or the Earth <coughs> system as fundamentally interconnected in all kinds of ways uh, um, uh, as a given now, but, and I certainly do. Um, as for the history of uh, Western thought, um, I, I went to comprehensive school, so I lack a bit of uh, the early training, but I did take history and philosophy of science here at Cambridge. That helped me out a bit. And um, what I've learned um, is in the Greeks, there was the oikos and the polis. And the oikos, which is sort of what we've run with, Aristotle and so forth, um, presumed that the, there was a preordained order to the world. There was a house, a household. There was a sort of patriarchy in the household. And that's the model we've run with so, uh, following Aristotle. But in... I think this is in Plato and in Plato writing about Socrates, there's also the polis, which is where the beings, people in that case, have to work out how to govern themselves, how to organise a city in that case. And uh, wouldn't it be an interesting and different uh, way of being if you had a little bit more emphasis on, on the latter, perhaps? That's the way I'm starting to think about it. And maybe it's one way to look at how how the bacteria and everything else in Gaia interact. They sort of unconsciously work out a way of governing themselves. So, uh, yeah, we're certainly at the, long, the far end of a very long journey in a, in a line of philosophical thought in the West. But as you rightly say, uh, we don't have to stray too far around the planet to find a completely different tradition of thought that's perhaps an awful lot better aligned to to the Lovelockian or the Gaia thinking. And just to chip in on the interconnectedness, like I spent this afternoon looking at a pile of data from the summer which was biological and chemical and physical and discussing that with colleagues and there are no boundaries. These are things that are interlinked and there is absolutely no question. Like I, I, we, can't, we know we can't study any of those things now without studying all of them. So it's, it's, not even a, it's, it's not a debate anymore, actually, the interconnectedness. Do you have anything to contribute? Uh, just to make a couple of comments. It, for me, it's the difference between um, a kind of sum of physics and 
uh, ecology. Um, physics got a long way by isolating elements of the real world around us, doing first order models and then perturbing them to begin to take into account the complexity. So there's an old joke that a physicist's model of a cow is a two meter sphere, which they might paint black and white and allow methane to leak out of. So, so uh, but, but with ecology, you, you have to study the complexity. As soon as you start to try and isolate pieces and remove bits, you've lost what it is you're studying. And an Earth system science, or Gaia, is the ultimate ecological collection because it encompasses everything. Um, the, the only other thing I would say is that I've been doing some, I've been learning a lot in the last five years working with neuroscientists and psychosociologists and clinical psychiatrists and, and narrative specialists about how people make sense of the world. And, and I have to admit, you know, my neuroscientist colleagues sort of fell about laughing when I explained what I thought my Mark I paleolithic brain was doing. But as a physicist, I assumed it was trying to build an ever more accurate model of the world around <laughs> me. And of course, they fell about and said, oh, good God, you know, that's not what evolution uh, delivered you. It delivered you something that provides you with meaning in context. It, it provides you with signals and, and reactions that try and maximize your benefit and minimize your disbenefit. And as soon as you understand that, and, and there are wonderful examples where you can show that a particular scene where the, the hue, color, and intensity of various patches in the scene are absolutely identical. So a physical instrument would say these two are the same, but in the context of a scene, uh, the brain automatically differentiates them because it's important to understand what the intrinsic color of a thing is, whether it's in shade or not, uh, rather than it, the actual signal on the retina. So when you begin to understand what our Paleolithic Mark I brain is doing, then you begin to understand uh, where it fails, where it's clever, and, and begin to understand why it is that our relationship with other humans in the planet is as complex and difficult as it is. I would like to make a point here about reductionist science, because I think, I think it's, these th two things are not necessarily conflicting, and the point is we need both. Like yes. Reductionist yes. science has allowed enormous progress to be made in, in isolating and identifying behavior that allows you to pick apart what is doing this thing here. But the point is that those are only the jigsaw pieces, I think, and that this has to be then built up again. Um, we've got another question, maybe somewhere on this side, at the back over there somewhere. Yeah. One question. We're having one question. Yeah, there's one question, but for all three of you, if possible. Go ahead. Um, so between complicity and complacency, which do you think is more of an influence on the exacerbation of climate collapse? Are we complicit or are we complacent? What do we think about that? <laughs> Probably a bit of both. <laughs> in, uh, do you mean in terms of the unsustainable way in which humanity is behaving? Or? Well, I mean, like, uh, in terms of the, the influence that actually has, like, if we say, for example, climate skepticism isn't actually uh, that much of an influence because the only country where it has uh, the, the one party in the government uh, is visibly skeptical about the climate is the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world and every other nation isn't. Um, is it enough? I mean, we're not all complicit to that scale. We're not all uh, complacent to certain levels. So I'm just asking which do you think has more of an influence? I don't think we have a huge amount of choice about being complicit in the strictest sense because unless you go and live on a mountain and I completely isolate yourself from absolutely everything, you s we're, we are a collective, you know, and I think, you know, 
not that we want to talk about Brexit, but I think Chris's point about understanding interactions and the value of what other people, what we need other people, that has definitely been lost. Um, and it's been lost because our pattern-fitting brains like stories with heroes and villains. I, I think that uh, there are lots of things that we could say here. There, there is a danger that there's a, a been a strong trend towards individualism and the sort of right of the individual to behave the way they wish, regardless of what damage they may do, which they may not be aware of. Um, but I think more generally, um, I, I, I don't. I, I get very nervous when uh, the, the language begins to edge towards what can become a tyranny. You know, I've given talks on climate change, and I've had people from the audience come up afterwards and say, huh, I heard you flew on an airplane last week. Uh, to which the answer is, well, yes, I did. I, I, I interrogated my conscience. I thought very carefully about it. I have not flown on aircraft when I might have done recently. But in the end, it's up to every individual to make their own decision, and it must not become a tyranny. If we all start pointing fingers at each other, then that is not going to help. But none of us would wish to be in a... Um, high-carbon world now that we know what the consequences are. But it was completely unwitting. People didn't deliberately go out and uh, toss you know, large quantities of CO2 into the atmosphere. It didn't seem to be a problem until science revealed it. Um, but now that science has revealed it, then we need a sensible, civil, proper discussion about how we work together to find a way forward. We're not trying to blame anybody. So uh, we are complicit, but, but we mustn't try and apportion blame, it's not helpful. We simply need, need to recognize what the issue is and be sensible about finding the most easy, the, the, the most beneficial way forward. After all, the, the fossil fuels that we've burned, have, have, look, at the, look at the lives that we lead. I mean, the, 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 the quality of life that a very large fraction of humanity, unfortunately not all of humanity leads, is remarkable. So you need to add to him? Um, I think, for me, if we're going to avoid the worst of what I would call the coming climate tipping points, then we've left it late enough now that we're going to have to have profound transformative change in our social, ecological, technological, economic space. Um, and that's the position we've collectively put ourselves in, and not entirely unknowingly or complacently. And for me, it's time to take some lessons from... a a very long-lived and successful flourishing of life in the form of Gaia to uh, accelerate the transition to a, a societies powered by sustainable energy and built on, in the broadest terms, the recycling of all the material resources they need and to change the way in which we... Uh, in the priority in which information flows through society rather than from being restricted in a hierarchical structure to build much more networked and horizontal information flows to accelerate this transition. Uh, because if we don't do it, we're on the way out this century. So I want to go back to the question that I asked you before and then stopped you answering, which is that if Gaia is a viable theory, uh, how do you reconcile that with the, the climate disruption, destruction that we are currently wreaking on ourselves? Or is this just Gaia's way of getting rid of us? Well, I've, I've written a book about with Andy Watson, my friend, on what we called the revolutions that made the Earth, which is to, to, to recognise 
that were actually only here because of a very few, very rare, extraordinary times of sort of tipping point change in the history of the planet where some new biological innovation like oxygen production completely changed the world. And it must have been an extraordinarily tumultuous time when it did. And for me, uh, we, it might well be the case that we, are, we may be in the midst of one of these extraordinary mm. and rare revolutions. Um, the reason why we can disrupt the system is partly because it's unusually unstable at the moment, and the Ice Age cycles show us that. They show us a planet that's extraordinarily sensitive to fairly s small changes in the Earth's orbit and turn that into an extraordinary oscillation over hundreds of thousands of years with 150 meter changes in sea level and five degrees changes in the Earth's temperature. So we come along, bizarrely, at a time when I would say Gaia is unusually unstable, and we hit the system, and we're hitting it far faster than the mechanisms that have evolved to date were designed, or not designed, but rather evolved to cope with, pardon my teleology. <laughs> so, I mean, we still can thank the biosphere for taking half of every year's carbon emissions straight back out of the atmosphere, because the problem mm -hmm. would be twice as bad and going twice as quickly if it, if it wasn't. But we're doing things so quickly that we're overriding uh, what has evolved thus far. And that puts the ball in our court. If you want to wait for the naturally evolved mechanisms to deal with the mess we're making, it's going to be a tumultuous and long and painful wait, and I'm not sure we'll get to see the end of it. So we, the option is we choose to regulate, we choose to do things differently, or, or we suffer the consequences of, of not taking that on board. So on that note, because the name of this uh, year's climate, Cambridge Climate Lecture Series, uh, the question <laughs> asked is, can we fix it? I want to skip forward to something that um, Jim recorded for us uh, on, not that one, this one. Oh. So geoengineering is quite simply engineering the Earth. Um, it it's a practical way that we can take ourselves to undo some of the harm that is being done as a result of global warming. And uh, it's not a bad idea at all. It's a, nobody's quite sure how practical it is. But assuming that it works, um, for example, there was uh, the, that famous H-bomb scientist Teller in, invented a way, he didn't, he didn't only invent bombs, he did other things that were more useful. He um, introduced the idea of a mesh screen, just a fine mesh, very fine indeed, that was spun out by its own centrifugal forces somewhere in between the earth and the sun and held in position by rockets in the way that the, the geosynchronous satellites get your television programs and things to you. And that, that would deflect a portion, a tiny well, you know, percent or so of the sunlight away into space. And that, would, that of course, would cool the earth. So it's a lovely idea. I'm not sure, I had no notion how practical it is, whether NASA could do it for us or not. But uh, there you are. I mean, that's, that's a typical bit of geoengineering. Another one is to spray fine particles in the atmosphere. 
that reflect the sunlight back to space, which is similar in many ways. Some people are passionately against the idea of geoengineering. They say, <laughs> you know, it's more technology, technology got us into this mess. Why would you use more to get us? Where would you, how would you reply to those kinds of... I'd be a bit disgusted by anybody who said that. It's not that, it's how much does it cost. Um, if it's not, not an expensive operation, I mean, if that disc, spinning disc can easily be put up there by NASA, and think of all the other things that are sent up into space, why not? Uh, and it works, it does this work, then do it. it, it it's going to uh, save an awful lot. Crop yields will increase, all sorts of things will, will get better. And uh, so, no, I've nothing, nothing against the idea. If, on the other hand, it's desperately expensive and you've got, you've got to lose heavily by doing it, well, then you wouldn't do it. It's just, uh, to me, this is a matter of common sense rather than science. So, <laughs> now this is a cat among the pigeons topic, um, and, uh, but we'll dig into it a little bit because, as, as Tim has said, if you take this idea to its logical conclusion uh, and you have the knowledge and you have the ability, do, what do you do? Um, so I will throw my hat in the ring here and say, that, say what, what I think most um, current Earth scientists would say, which is that the problem with geoengineering is not necessarily doing it, it's the unintended consequences. We've done lots of things already that had lots of unintended consequences. Mm. And um, if you just create another one, you've probably got a cascade of more unintended consequences, and we really don't need any more. Um, so that's, uh, that, that's one of the reasons for not feel the, the, the caution on behalf of a lot of climate scientists. But there are also modelers, if you look at the current, um, you know, the projections for what will happen with our current input, extra carbon dioxide and methane actually now into the atmosphere, there are people who say, well, we'll never turn this round without doing something else. You know, carbon capture is one thing, but will, would, can, can that ever be enough? So, so this is one of those hot topics, and of course the problem is that it's all about collective. Geoengineering isn't something that a country can do or a region can do. It's something that we either all do or we all don't do. Uh, so what, what's Gaia and geoengineering, and how, how do we think about all this? What do we do? Um, I'll put my cards on the table, if you like. I think uh, that the geoengineering, that the kinds we've just heard about, are the kind of end result of what some would call the Enlightenment program or this whole tradition of Western thought which uh, see, saw the universe as a machine, this would actually literally turn the planet into a machine. It could also be argued to be a form of my Gaia 2.0, a sort of self-aware self-regulation, but a one I would vote, if I'm allowed to democratically, strongly against. I think what we want is what I'm going to call the sake of argument, Gaia engineering, just even though they have the same word root. And that is rather we take some lessons from Gaia out as to how uh, to, to run our own society and our own interaction with the rest of Gaia in a, a much more long-term sustainable way <coughs> that I've also already described some of the elements of. Uh, for me, that's, that's the smart thing to do. And the, the, the risks and the kind of global technocracy that would be required to run 
some of these global geoengineering schemes fill me with absolute horror as a human being. <coughs> well, I agree with Tim. I mean, the way Gaia would do it is to ensure that the waste product from one, one uh, uh, activity is the feedstock for another, and that's what's not happening at present. Our, our waste is not the feedstock for another element of the system, so that's what we need to achieve. Uh, and I think there's a general principle that if you have a problem, it's much better to sort, uh, sort it out at source rather than to try and patch it up at the, uh, literally at the tailpipe um, because you will always end up with unintended consequences and imperfect fit. So Jim's example of solar, engine, uh, solar uh, reflectivity engineering is, is um, uh, one more permanent way. And of course, if, if it caused trouble, you could go up there and rip it up and throw it away and, and return to where you were so you could recover. Um, but of course, there are, there are cheaper offers uh, on uh, uh, being considered where you um, uh, seed the uh, contrails of aircraft with uh, sulfur particles and so on. The trouble with that is that you, if you go in that direction, you're committed to doing it forever. Because if you stop, the uh, aerosols drop out of the atmosphere quickly, and then you get the full brunt of whatever accumulated uh, potential for global warming that you've allowed to uh, aggregate up in the meantime. Um, the other thing, of course, is that the other sort of uh, uh, falling under the same general title of geoengineering is the withdrawal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, we need to do a lot of that to, just to get back the stuff that we shouldn't have put there in the first place. Um, but there's a misconception that um, if you drew carbon dioxide back down to the point where we got to 280 parts per million, what you, you, know, you might call the natural uh, interglacial level, um, there's every expectation, in fact, Jim's own models show that the system is so complex it's likely to suffer hysteresis and sit up in, its, in the warm state that you've shifted into and stay locked there and not just drop back down again. So again, much better to solve the problem at source rather than try and fix it downstream. Right, we could talk about that for a long time, we're not going to. We've got 10 minutes left. Let's take some more questions uh, from the audience. Yes. Up there at the top yes, in the corner. Good. <coughs> um, thank you very much. Um, I was wondering with the Gaia 2.0 hypothesis, if you saw any benefit in um, us developing our self-awareness as individuals, groups, um, kindly awareness, self-awareness, and how that might help where we find ourselves. Absolutely. Collective self-awareness, collective action, indeed. Yeah. Perhaps enough, perhaps enough said, uh, and I don't pretend to have much expertise on this thing called consciousness, but uh, my friend Bruno, who I, who I flash, flashed up on the slides, has been busy teaching me that the latest thinking on consciousness is it's really just uh, an elaborate error correction mechanism that's going on in, inside us. So we mustn't perhaps get too aggrandized <laughs> ideas about, about what the phenomenology is here and I think all the power and all the potential for change and for the better as well um, it lies in in networks in innovation and in yeah in collective sensitivity and kind <coughs> of a I was tempted to say collective intelligence as as well if it's a very good question in, in any feedback system in, in your central heating you know regulation system you have you have to have something that is sensing the uh, parameter you want to control. So you have a temperature sensor, a thermostat, and uh, if you're above the temperature, it'll turn your system off. If you're below the temperature, it'll turn it on. And, and as Tim says, the, you know, our senses are in, in, in many ways 
a, just part of a complex feedback system that allows us to interact with the real world. So uh, there's been a lot of thinking about, well, what vital signs of the planet could we offer humanity, politicians, business people, us, um, that would al allow us to regulate, to sort of feed back? And of course, it, you know, science has shown that sea level is rising, temperatures are changing and so on. Um, but a huge amount of work has been done uh, by organizations like the Global Climate Observing System and the World Met Organization. And you can go to websites and you can find series of parameters, you know, showing how they've been changing over uh, decades, the satellite era, 30 years or more. Um, and the idea is that making people aware of these could change behavior. Um, but, you know, anybody who's tried to lose weight knows that, you know, the, the simple act of measuring your weight each morning doesn't necessarily lead to the result that you're looking for. You've got to connect it to action as well. But it's an essential first step. If you don't have those measures, then you can't control on anything because you don't know what you're trying to control on. And a lot of effort is going into generating vital signs that hopefully will get connected with political behavior and business behavior and so on. So it's a step in the right direction, but unfortunately it's not happening at the, uh, on the scale and urgency that we really need. Let's try and squeeze in another question from somewhere over here. Somewhere there on the back, yeah, on the back section there, because we haven't had anyone from up there. Yep. Hi, thanks. Um, I was just wondering, how important do you think humanity is today in the Gaia system, considering, um, yeah, the, like the, the problems that we run into? If we were, say, pushed out of the system, how long is Gaia likely to continue, say, considering that the energy source for the Earth, the sun, has a finite existence. Is humanity like quite important in continuing this further than the life of the sun? I mean, I know that Jim has his uh, views on it, but I don't know, I'd be interested to hear your point of view as well. Well, for anyone worried about this, the sun has a while to go. <laughs> so we've got a th bit of thinking time about this. But <laughs> Tim, what, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, when I um, see Jim these days, he's often talking about how uh, humans could be a crucial part of the long-term persistence of Gaia. We could deflect that dam really damaging asteroid mm. that's coming towards us with whatever nuclear warheads into space or whatever it would need. Um, and maybe we'll even be able to terraform to send propagules of Gaia out further out into the solar system to buy us some time. But all of that's predicated on what would be an extraordinarily long lifespan for any species, let alone our own, given that most species last an average of something like seven million years, is it? Or a few million years. Um, so right now, uh, if we came out of the equation, I can tell you how long roughly it would take for our carbon perturbation to be uh, drawn <coughs> away by Gaia's natural processes. It would be about 500 thousand years and then things will settle down and we would predict from our models that Gaia will keep running against a brightening sun for one to one and a half billion years still. Um, so I don't, I don't think we're sailing to the, we need to sail to the rescue or indeed we're going to any time soon. I think we need to get our own house in order if we want and, and consider it, well, perhaps in a more <laughs> selfish species perspective, which is can we actually, uh, can we flourish? Can we persist and flourish? Because we can't, we're not going to if we carry on doing what we're doing. Um, it's, it's worth reminding everybody that in, in the long history of, of the planet and the even long, longer history of the universe, you know, the last 50 years is an absolute blink. It's a tiny little sliver. 
but you know, if you could choose uh, the time to live in all of human history, um, this is a really interesting time to live. It's a slightly frightening time to live, um, but not only have we been so prosperous, but humanity through its massive explosion of population. I mean, when I uh, was born, the human population was two and a half billion, something like that. It's you know, three times that now. Um, and also the equally or much greater explosion of economic activity, um, which um, means also the movement of materials and energy and mm. general disruption of cycles. You know, we, we fix more nitrogen than the natural cycle does. And that great acceleration, so-called great acceleration, all kicked off in about 1960, 1970. So we're talking about the, real, uh, the last 30, 40 years. What's fascinating is that in that time, humans have gone from being a, a disruptor of the planet at the landscape scale. So, you know, there used to be trees on Dartmoor, but, you know, our predecessors chopped them all down. So we, we've had landscape scale impacts. Often you would say, you would judge them to be not, not particularly good. Um, but what's happened in the last 50 years is that, is that humanity has started to affect the planet at the level of its metabolism. We have changed the energy balance of the planet. As we sit here, um, the energy is accumulating mainly in the ocean, 94% in the ocean. It's as if every single person on the planet had 21 and a half kilowatt kettles and was just pouring hot water continuously into the ocean. So we've gone from damage on the landscape scale to damage on the, on the global scale, at the metabolism scale. That's what we call the Anthropocene. Um, and so now we are exerting Gaia too, unwittingly, one way or another. Tim's point is that, the, that science has revealed what's going on. So we now have the opportunity, if we can get our wits together, to grab the controls and doing it, do it in a witting way, which is more harmonious with the system. And what Tim is saying is, let's look at how the system handled this through a series of evolutionary processes, many of them by chance, building one on another, and see if we can grab the handles in, in that way and, and find a harmonious balance with the planet, which is our life support system. You know, where does the oxygen come from? <laughs> Okay, so we've had some questions from online. We haven't got time to go into them, but just to give you a, um, uh, an idea of what they're thinking about, there was a question about how do we uh, rethink business models to respect or recognise that economics and the environment are not separate things. Um, there's a question about a guy making quantitative predictions uh, and a question about ocean seeding whether that's geoengineering geo or Gaia engineering. I like this word, Gaia engineering. I hadn't heard that before. Um, so just before we get to the final, we've got a final word from Jim, but before we get there, I want to just ask you both, and you've sort of answered this already, but this, very briefly, if you would, what do we do with this information? We are an intelligent species. We've measured lots of things. We have Gaia. Should we choose to use it? What do we do in the, the short, potted version? Oh, look at that. I told them to be, sh to told right. them to be quick. And okay, then <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. Um, uh, <laughs> Daniel Kahneman, uh, who some of you may have uh, come across his book, Thinking Fast and Straight, is a Nobel Prize winning economist who has put a huge amount of effort into understanding uh, human psychology, human behavior. And um, if, if you, there's a clip of him on the internet, and he understands how people work as individuals and collectively. And he's, he says, with a very gloomy look, he said, um, I'm very, uh, very pessimistic about humanity's ability to deal with uh, climate change and indeed the 
sustainability of the planet. So everything I see about human behavior tells me that, you know, there are people who get it. Probably a lot of people in this audience would uh, want to identify with that. Uh, but, you know, just look at what's going on in Westminster at present. You know, it doesn't leave you uh, with very much hope, does it? Um, and so humanity, by and large, for whatever reason, is really struggling uh, to get to grips with these huge, complex problems. And in fact, the reaction to them is to try and oversimplify, popularize, demonize, tribalize, and that's exactly the wrong direction to go in. So is there a glimmer of hope? Well, uh, there is a kind of weird, almost science fiction-y technocratic one, which is that we may develop humans too. There's a lot of work going on at present to develop human exoskeletons, to develop uh, increased sensory um, perception in humans, uh, and indeed to modify humans by, the, by inserting things, by enhancing them biologically, by changing them genetically. So uh, one possible route to the future, which you may find a bit fantastic, would be that we simply generate humans too, at which point we all become redundant. Humans too, if they've got any sense, probably get rid of us all because then they can get on with managing the planet in a properly Gaian way. And maybe that's, uh, maybe I should be quiet. Yeah, everyone thought it was the robots that were gonna take over, but no, it turns out it's just our- uh, But just let me just tell you one thing. There is a guy, there is a guy in the States who has a series of sensors, uh, little actuators on his back, an array, I think it's 100 by 100, into which they're feeding economic data from the, uh, the uh, financial exchanges, and his brain is, is feeling that stuff, and the brain is very plastic. What did he do to deserve this? What did he do? They are waiting for him to say, buy, sell, uh, not understanding why, and make an enormous amount of money. So, you know, it's all creeping up on us. It's happening. Okay, got, right. So have you got very, anything happier to say? I've got a short answer, because I've had plenty of time to think about it, and I, I proceed <laughs> it by... Uh, saying I'm, a, I'm really an atheist or certainly agnostic, but I think the first step is probably to realise the miracle of our existence in this extraordinary system, the debt we owe to other life forms, the desecration we're causing to our own life support system, but to cherish, yeah, cherish that miracle that's got us here 3.8 billion later, years later in the first place, and there's still microbes running the world around us. And I think only if we can connect to that are we going to find some kind of salvation and part in that system. Uh, so basically, it's either humans too or the microbes that are going to be running the world. Just to finish off very quickly, we've got one more clip from Jim uh, on the future of humanity. I think. Well, if you want my personal view on this, and it is part of a book that uh, I've just written, um, I don't think that humanity is going to be bothering about this very much longer, perhaps not longer than this century. Uh, we are evolving still and changing, and uh, the things we're changing into are brighter than we are. Uh, and I'm not talking about robots now or mechanical devices. I'm talking about evolution. Um, well, we, we all of us are evolving into other things. And uh, it, it's, uh, I, I think it's a very interesting future. You're quite optimistic. In the as optimistic as anybody yeah. touching a hundred can be. <laughs> <laughs> I, and on that topic... Oh, yeah. Um, 
Tim gets a bit of a plug at the end here. Go on, you know, tell us what this is. Well, just, just to say that to celebrate Jim's birthday, which is actually the 26th of July, <coughs> um, we'll be hosting a, a, a centenary meeting in Exeter. Um, I'd love some of you to join us, and Chris and Helen will be there and part of it. And there's, there's the link at the bottom. Can I add one last anecdote? I was invited to Jim's 90th birthday, and uh, I thought to myself, what can you give somebody who's 90-year-old Jim? So I persuaded some of my colleagues from, from Bass to let me have a piece of ancient ice, you know, drilled out of the Antarctic uh, ice sheet. And so they got me a doer of this thing, you know, the night before, and I got it to uh, Blenheim, and duly uh, took this piece of ice out and gave it to Jim, I think a couple of thousand years old. And uh, at the end of the evening, he said to me, I do wish you hadn't done that, Chris. I thought, oh my God, you know, what have I done? He said, I spent the whole dinner worrying about what we should be measuring from it. <laughs> so. so that's the kind of mind we need to give us, to give us a way out of this. Okay, so we, uh, we're here, you know, thank you, Jim, if you're listening online, um, for all of these ideas and all of this inspiration. Um, I hope that everyone who's been here will be encouraged to just, you know, think about this a little bit differently, find out about these things, think about the history of ideas and the future of ideas. Don't think about turning into humans 2.0. Um, that's, that's a few years down the line. Um, but thank you very much for coming. And please join me in thanking our two panellists, Chris and Tim. Thanks.